I'm Alex Marlowe, Editor-in-Chief of Breitbart News, and this is the Breitbart News Daily Podcast. On today's show, we begin with a horrific story from our southern border where a National Guardsman apparently died saving two drowning illegal aliens who intended to smuggle drugs into our country. It's a national disgrace and should wake people up, but will it? It was Earth Day over the weekend. And politically speaking, the Greens are in retreat, most likely because the fake news is no longer credible on anything, including alleged climate change. But some people are deeply committed to the cause of slowing human progress in the name of Mother Earth, including one man who burned himself alive on the steps of the Supreme Court. Yes, that really happened, and I explain. Ron DeSantis continues to run up the score in Florida. Donald Trump weighs in on Prince Harry and Meghan Markle drama, and more in the opening of the show. Two guests today. The first is London Bureau Chief Oliver Lane, who reports out the details and explains the significance of the French presidential election. And then MMA fighter, coach, hunting enthusiast, and online influencer James Vick joins the show to discuss the keys to being an elite fighter, how to noodle for catfish, why hog hunting is the best, and so, so much more. All that to come right now. Let's get into the news, and I'm going to start with something that's really depressing but incredibly important. Uh, we had a story uh, yesterday about a, a man, a Texas National Guard specialist named Bishop Evans, and he was on a Sunday, he went missing. And the story is that he jumped in the Rio Grande to save migrants from drowning. And Governor Greg Abbott shared a photo of Evans calling him a hero for risking his life in service of the Lone Star State in the United States of America. And he tweeted, the Texas National Guard Specialist Bishop Evans is a hero who risked his life in service Texas and America. Law enforcement and rescue teams continue the relentless search for him. Join us in prayer for a successful recovery. So he's gone, and presumably he's not coming back. Um, but we reported that Evans was identified by authorities on Sunday later on the day after a search and rescue team had been tirelessly searching for his whereabouts since he went missing in the Rio Grande on uh, Friday. And from our report, an extensive search was launched on Friday morning after Evans was reported missing. Search teams from the Texas Army National Guard, Texas Parks and Wildlife Border Patrol and other agencies converged along the river. The search continued through Saturday with negative results and operations resumed early Sunday with three airboats from the Texas Department of Public Safety. Texas Rangers uh, are currently investigating the circumstances and the initial information was that led him to believe that the two migrants that were struggling in in the current that he saved were actually illegal transnational narcotics traffickers. So this is a statement from the Texas Military Department saying he was saving two migrants who were drowning in a current. They both survived. And lo and behold, we learned that these were not sending their best. These were people who were trying to bring illegal narcotics in the United States of America. And Bishop Evans, who's 22 years old, Texas National Guard special uh, specialist, 
uh, of Arlington, Texas, has been missing and presumed to have drowned. Drowned trying to save two migrants, which we report on all the time at Breitbart, how migrants get saved by our uh, bravest Americans. He drowned trying to save two. They were trying to smuggle illegal drugs in the United States of America. Because he didn't know. How would he know? How would he know they're not sending their best? So it is in one story why we need to have our border taken more seriously by people who are in charge of it. That you get a 22-year-old person cut down their prime. Uh, if you want to go woke on me, if you care about wokeness, Bishop Evans happens to be a black man. So that's just something if you want any additional woke points. If you care very much about black lives, do black lives matter? Do they? I think they do. This is a, a man who's a hero who tried to save human beings who might not have deserved to live as much as he does. Might not have. But he doesn't care. He's doing his job. His job is to save people. And instead of us having you know, a wall, instead of us having a system where people can come in through the front door, we have people trying to smuggle drugs across Rio Grande they get in trouble. We send out guys, save them. The illicit drug traffickers get saved. And the American who is trying to enforce our laws in a humanitarian way. And he dies. This is out of control. And it's been going on for so long. It's so depressing to even bring this up to you because we are so we lack so much compassion for the people who are down on our border. We lack so much compassion for those who are tasked with enforcing, uh, half enforcing the border because we do not have sane laws and practices that keep our Americans safe. We're keeping the illegal drug traffickers safe by sending people like Bishop Evans down there, National Guardsmen, and so that he can keep the illegal drug traffickers safe, but he is not safe. And now his family is going to have to think about this for the rest of their lives. And it just should have happened. It is 100% entirely avoidable. And anyone who stood against the border wall, anyone who doesn't believe we should have border enforcement, um, anyone like Elizabeth Warren, who was out there over the weekend saying Title 42 is not consistent with our values, and that uh, Biden's planning a mass amnesty, who, who knows if she's telling the truth, but she says that. So we need to keep the bad guys out, not save them by sacrificing our National Guardsmen. So a happy story to start the week, but it's one you have to bring up. Because when you see the convergence of China with the fentanyl, the cartels with their human smuggling and drug smuggling, and the Democrats with their open border agenda to try to import a bunch of people into our country who don't really want to be here that bad, they just want to make money. Not to say some don't want to be here. Some do. But presumably some of those can go through the front door. We're benefiting the worst people on the planet. And we are hurting the best. And I hold the media in utter contempt that they've allowed for us to get to this place. A sane media would have put an end to this right away. Because we screamed, we've screamed as loud as we can in the stuff at Breitbart for so long. Um, even Fox is on top of this one who has traditionally not been great on the border. Um, but I will say that this is, this is a depressing one. This one got me. This one got me pretty bad. 
So we've got it all on the front page, breakbird.com for you. Um, other stuff is kind of a busier news weekend, I must say. There's a few things I want to touch on. Uh, uh, first thing is a preview. Tonight is the Senate debate. Those of you listening to the live show on uh, for uh, Pennsylvania, and I cannot wait. I cannot wait to circle down the calendar uh, because this is the proverbial win-win for me because we're going to watch Dr. Oz um, try to defend his uh, position to the public that he's a conservative, uh, even though he has served in the Turkish military, not the American military, has traditionally been pro-trans, saying kids are born trans, has been pro-choice, has been pro-gun control, been pro-red flag laws. I mean, the list goes on. You, you lose track. And uh, we've covered a lot of it at Breitbart, but I, I can't. It's more than I can rattle off the uh, uh, the, the red flag, so to speak, in Dr. Oz's candidacy. So, but I'm really looking forward to seeing. Oh, not to mention he's not really from Pennsylvania. He's kind of a New Jersey, New York, Florida guy. Uh, but I'm looking forward to hearing him prove that he's a conservative. Because if he does. Uh, that's gonna be great. It's a look. There, there's guys out there like that who just one day they wake up and they they are uh, right wingers. I have no uh, impression that that's Oz, but if it is, that's great. That's fine. That's a win. And if he struggles to defend the values that he is telling the public he's going to uh, uh, he, he's going to advance, then I'll be very interested to see that as well. Um, Emmanuel Macron won re-election in France, which was to be expected. Uh, it looks like a pretty big margin, pretty similar to what I would have anticipated, which is why I did not do obsessive coverage of Breitbart. We had pretty comprehensive coverage, and we'll talk to Oliver Lane hopefully later today in the live broadcast as well, but about 59% to 41%, uh, which is exactly how we thought it, it would go um, because Le Pen got second in the first ballot, Macron getting the, the most votes. And then a lot of the people were going to pick Macron as their second pick. That, that seemed to be the thing. It, it's a um, the, the, we'll get the analysis from Oliver, but it is just more of the same in France, which largely is not not great. But it's it's France. So have we come to expect uh, global leadership from France? I, I don't think so. And actually, the one thing where France is way ahead is that they are big into nuclear power, which we've just rejected in the United States because we're nuts. Um, we've just decided that, you know, we're more concerned about uh, waste from the nuclear reactors, I guess, which is uh, n not nearly as, if you're responsible, is man something that's manageable. Um, but we've just rejected it for whatever reason. And so other than that, I don't know where we're looking at France these days. But again, you can always, you always root against the establishment in places like that. And the establishment prevailed yet again. So more of the same coming out of France coming up. Um, it was Earth Day on Friday, and we had some pretty good Earth Day content at Breitbart on the front page, uh, especially when you're seeing how climate change is falling down the list of priorities for Americans, left, right, and center. Uh, the right regards it as uh, basically its lowest priority of the major issues laid out by a CBS YouGov poll. Um, and uh, the, even Democrats are uh, just not that into it these days compared to other stuff. So uh, if you don't look at political party, the number one priority for Americans right now is the economy. And why wouldn't it be? 76% say that and 73% say inflation. Um, Janet Yellen said over the weekend that we're going to have to put up with inflation for a while longer. And that's 
what we if you read Breitbart's daily business digest that John Carney and I put out every day, or if you listen to this show, then you know that that's the case. But it is still important to hear people who are not, you know, with our direct worldview, affirming what I'm saying. Janet Yellen, of course, doesn't share my worldview on the economy. So everyone's agreeing. Inflation is not slowing down at this point. Um, thus, it is a higher priority for Americans. Um, Ukraine is a higher priority for Americans. Crime is a higher priority for Americans. Immigration is a higher priority for Americans. And then climate change is a high priority for 39% of Americans. So that is a that is a ridiculously low number, in my opinion. Because remember, you don't just have to pick one. Like 76% of the Americans are concerned about the economy, 73% inflation, etc. So only 39% deeply concerned about climate change, which is which is a, probably about right, actually. Of all the issues, it's one that's the hardest to disprove. Uh, I think there's a lot of stuff that's going on out there. You know, the, the Russian collusion hoax, Hunter Biden laptop hoax. There are these hoaxes that you basically prove flat out that the narrative on CNN, MSNBC, and the New York Times is false. And then people just keep going headlong in that direction. Climate change is tougher to do that exactly because there is an underlying logic to it that, you know, if we keep um, polluting at the level we have, if China keeps doing what they want to do, and we keep sending all this stuff in the atmosphere that maybe it would have a, at least some sort of a, a minor effect on the uh, on the climate. That's the premise that they're working off of. So the fact that only 39% um, they see it as a, a big priority, I think that's, that is pretty interesting. Far-left Democrats, though, still consider it the second highest priority behind Ukraine, so just to let you know. If someone is really into climate change, it is a pretty good indicator that they're on the on the hard left. But people are not happy with Biden's handling of it. Maybe that's why we don't talk about it as much, because I think the left doesn't feel like he goes far enough. I think the right feels like he's trying to cram the Green New Deal in our face. For example, he said over the weekend that he promised to spend billions to make every U.S. military vehicle climate friendly. How many of you are excited by that? Man, that's really fun. I would love to have some really green military vehicles. That would make me feel like we're ready to go for war with Russia and China. The radicals were celebrating, as they often do, by suggesting that the problem with the climate is humans. Humans are the problem. Humans are the disease. Uh, some wild people saying that maybe humans are the disease and COVID is the cure. There's lots of stuff like that going around left-wing Twitter circles. So the Twitter is useful for in the, in this one way where we get to see how people are, uh, 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 people on the left who, are, who don't get censored by the, uh, by the censors in Silicon Valley. You get to see where their mind is at. And a lot of them were tweeting about how horrible humans are. That's then thus fewer humans is good because it's better for Mother Earth. And even though there has been a minor expansion in some drilling permits, because again, Biden's looking at those polls and realizing people care more about the economy and inflation than they care about climate change, uh, the John Kerry reassured us that the we are moving to green, 
that any expansion in drilling is temporary and don't count on enjoying any sort of minor reduction in energy costs you might have seen over the last couple of weeks to bring them down from historic levels to just a notch below historic levels. Because don't worry, they're going to stop drilling. Um, John Carney keeps an eye on something for us called the Baker Hughes rig count, where he keeps an eye on the new oil rigs that are getting started in the United States. And in the last interval that they check it, there was one new rig that was set up, which is incredibly low. John Carney's our economic and finance editor. Yeah, it's a it's a one week, and um, even though there is a lot of pressure for us to produce more fossil fuels because we need the energy prices are the highest we've ever seen. The total number of oil rigs in the United States increased from 548 to 549 last week. So that just shows, again, we're not serious about tackling the major problems that we're facing right now. Uh, I filled up for $126 over the weekend, and I had to do the thing because they cut me off at $100. I don't know why. Or I just had to pull out the second credit card. I just don't get that. Um, so they cut you off at 100 and you get the second card out. It's ridiculous. Uh, there's a place called the the Permian Basin, which is thought to be the most oil-rich place that we're not optimizing right now. And for two weeks in a row, they added no new rigs. Uh, natu natural gas, another thing that we should be focused on keenly. Low-hanging fruit for us in the energy department. Uh, added one new rig. So 143 to 144. Canada shut down two rigs. So they were at 1,012, and now they're at 1,010. Of course, we get a lot of uh, oil from there as well. So th this is what the real effect of the green wokesters. Hey, but when humans are the problem, good. Maybe humans can feel a little more pain at the pump. Biden also said that windmills are pretty. That's the exact opposite. Windmills are hideous. Uh, my parents live in a part of the world called Palm Springs, which is very cool if you've ever been out there. It's really one of the coolest spots. Um, but in uh, Palm Springs, when you come in, if you're driving in from L.A., then you see when you descend in the Coachella Valley, known for the music festival, then you see like 50 miles of wind turbines. And they're just so hideous. They look so horrible. And um, so many of them are dormant. Uh, it just so many are just sitting there idle, which is also irritating for me because I'm sitting there going, look at these hideous monstrosities. They're just slaughtering birds and they're just not even working. If, if windmills are going to save us when they've saved us by now. So a climate change activist, uh, burned himself alive in the Supreme court steps. This is the lead story of Breitbart over the weekend. Uh, a climate activist uh, uh, named Wynne Bruce, a martyr for burning himself alive, according to climate activists, in front of the U.S. Supreme Court. 50 years old, he died from the injuries, lit himself on fire to raise awareness about climate change. Well, he's done it. Incident reported to the D.C. Metropolitan Police about 6.05 p.m. on Earth Day. How do you pull this off? I mean, he's on Earth Day. They get the Supreme Court. Is no one around? He was a practicing Buddhist performing an act of self-immolation. 
climate a- activists, needless to say, took to social media to call him a hero. Do you, are you feel more motivated now to um, make sure you're not using your your electronic devices at peak energy times? What's the plan? What are we supposed to do here? Give us a plan that we can that 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 can actually make things better for us. I would like for it to involve not buying oil from OPEC nations or Venezuela or horrible places. I would like to make sure that we're having more nuclear power. What's the plan? Is it do we have a plan or is it just windmills are pretty, as Joey the Biden says, and try to harass Americans who are trying to get energy out of the ground? And then occasionally you burn yourself alive Supreme Court steps. All right. Uh, Ron DeSantis did sign the bill dismantling Disney's special tax jurisdiction into law. Uh, this took a, a lot of people were suggesting that this makes him some sort of a socialist and a fascist. That is not the case, obviously. It's someone who's defending children. So it's the Disney has gone out of their way to try to codify this movement where the trans activists want children age five to nine years old to talk about gender fluidity and gender identity in the schools behind their parents' back against the parents' will. And Ron DeSantis is putting a stop to that, and that's a good thing. So he found a tax loophole that Disney had, and he shut it down. And to see the complaints from people who have been saying for my whole life that people need to pay their fair share, corporations need to pay their fair share. Well, Disney wasn't paying their fair share. Disney had a tax carve-out because it was very important to the people in the state of Florida to keep all the business there. So because it's so many jobs and so much commerce, reasonably, the Florida government some 55 years ago put in a vehicle for Disney to govern itself and give itself some tax breaks. Essentially a tax haven for one of the biggest corporations on earth. But as Disney's become increasingly pro-China and anti-parent, it's starting to annoy people. And Ron DeSantis, because he is a fighter, says, okay, well, we're just going to shut this down. And for, to watch all the hand-wringing of the people that are, that are the pay-your-fair-share crowd. I just don't want to hear it. I don't care. I don't care. I care about the kids, and I don't like Disney. That's it. You don't have to go any deeper than that. I don't need a National Review think piece on this one. Disney part of the bad guys now, and they had a, a corporate tax carve-out. Ron DeSantis shut it down. Sounds good. Love it. DeSantis also signed some anti-CRT legislation in Florida saying that we believe in education and not indoctrination. He's just running up the score. It's just unbelievable. It's so fun to watch. I, I feel like I'm watching, um, you know, Tiger Woods when he's on a run or when I was a, a Kobe Bryant or Barry Bonds fan. When these guys get in the zone, can't miss. Every time Barry takes the bat off his shoulder, launching out in, 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 into the cove out in right field. That's what it feels like. It's like every day I just, the, what did DeSantis do today? What home run did he hit? Shutting down the Disney corporate tax loophole and anti, it puts an anti-CRT piece of legislation out. And this is one weekend. Nice. On the flip side, LA has reinstated mask mandates according to uh, reports of Breitbart. I had told you, I think, over the weekend that this was likely to happen. And it has happened. So just know that not everyone sees eye to eye <laughs> with what we're trying to push here on this show and in places like Florida. 
And the airlines are offering comfort and refunds to passengers who are scared of seeing bare-faced flyers. This is the big thing on last week's show. We were talking about how it's become the, the mass now are the Kanekas of the of of uh, the uh, of of the Frady Cat liberals. Uh, the Kaneko is the mispronunciation of my three-year-old saying Kanejo, which is the Spanish word for bunny, for his little bunny that he used to sleep with until when he turned about three, then he didn't need it anymore. That was his, it was a literal security blanket with a little bunny head on it. One bad one I will throw out there on the border, 6,000 migrants in Tijuana raiding to rush into the U.S.-Mexico border when Joe Biden ends Title 42. So they're literally sitting there camped out May the 23rd. They will join you in the United States of America. Or maybe some of them will, uh, I guess the Rio Grande's not over there, but maybe some of them will have some sort of a health crisis when they're there and maybe one of our uh, best and brightest can save their lives sacrificing his own. Maybe, maybe we can have something like that happen. Like we saw down in Texas over the weekend. Uh, Piers Morgan is still in his standoff with Donald Trump getting a lot of headlines. He did claim that he walked off, Trump walked off the interview, even though Breitbart and others reported audio that showed that was a malicious edit. Trump did not walk out of the interview. So Piers continues to milk the attention off of it. Uh, and it is one that look we inevitably we're we're going to cover it. Donald Trump was weighing in, saying that he doesn't think Meghan Markle and Prince Harry are going to last. That's a clip from the interview. I happen to agree with President Trump. I do. I don't think Prince Harry and Meghan Markle are going to last. President Trump also said Prince Harry is an embarrassment for turning his back on the royal family, and I agree with that too. Smart points. Last one I'll bring up. Um, Still watching closely what's happening with Twitter and Elon Musk. The I was on Dr. Gorka's show on yesterday uh, on his Newsmax show talking about this. And I, I said that I hope Musk buys Twitter because Twitter can't get any worse. So uh, it's, I'm sure if uh, Musk could maybe do something good with it. But so far, he's bid kind of low. But I did mention on Friday's show, it looks like since he's totally secured financing to get it done, which we all knew he could do. Some people were acting stupid like he can't do it. He's the world's richest man. He could secure whatever funding he wants. His, his market share of his shares of Tesla alone are, give him enough leverage to be able to, to secure funds. So he did do that. And it seems like his bids come up just a touch. So that's a sign that maybe he's somewhat serious. So the Twitter board is going to have to consider it. So that's the big thing that's happening now is that the Twitter board is meeting and they do have to take because they have a fiduciary responsibility to their uh, their shareholders. And um, the the he did bid over what is the market value now. So the shareholders will make money if they accept the deal. Now, the case to be made for those who don't like Musk is that the bid is well, well below what it traded at for most of last year. So there's a reasonable thought that uh, naturally, if Twitter remains public, it will go up much higher than Musk bid, which is why I think Musk is going to have to come up if he's really serious. And we don't know if he's serious because, again, his initial bid had a pot joke in it, 420. I predict he offers $69 a share. That's just my vote. That's my prediction. And when he does that, then it'll be his. He will have Twitter. <laughs>
All right, part of the fun of being the editor-in-chief of Breitbart News is when I would rather talk to a super expert as opposed to summarizing something for you. I generally have one one such expert on my staff. So we reached out early in the morning to Oliver Lane to see if he could come on and fill us in on all the details of the French presidential election. He's someone who follows it very closely and has a great, not just a new sense of what's important, but what to read into it. All that right now. Oliver, so give us a rundown. What happened over the weekend in France? Uh, so the second round of the French presidential elections uh, was taking place on Sunday, although campaigning had already ceased, I think, by Friday night. Um, pretty much as expected, we have a uh, Emmanuel Macron win, although interestingly enough, by a considerably lower margin than last time. Um, you know, regular listeners will remember when we spoke about this last week, Alex, and you asked me, does Le Pen have a chance? And I said, well, yeah, she's got her best chance ever, uh, but she probably won't win. Uh, and that's pretty much exactly where we are. Um, but let's look at the numbers. Uh, Macron comes through with 58% of the vote. Uh, Le Pen comes through with 41%. Compare this to last time, because this is basically a grudge match. It's a total rerun of 2017. Last time around, Macron got 66%. So you know, he's down like eight points uh, in, the, in the past five years. Not so much, perhaps, but it is a pretty low outcome. Not as low as some. Um, in a recent memory, there was a president in France who was elected with 51% of the vote, which is, you know, really skin of the teeth stuff. Um, but it's it's not so good for Macron. He had a bad um, first term in terms of a lot of protests, a lot of issues, uh, and it's reflected in the numbers. What also is interesting is that turnout is down this time. Um, we're down to basically 70%, 71%. Um, and that seems to fall pretty much every election. And the, the really interesting point, I was discussing this with my colleagues this morning, uh, Breitbart London, uh, is that the way this election has been framed uh, is that this is sort of the, the battle to save civilization. This is how the establishment media has had it. Um, if Le Pen uh, were to become president, she would be Hitler too. Um, she's going to destroy the European Union. She's going to make peace with Vladimir Putin. She's going to put all working French out of business. And despite all these apocalyptic predictions, um, turnout was still low. People were clearly not motivated to uh, act in the way they were being bidden to by uh, the establishment media. So, you know, the extent to which those apocalyptic stories are actually being taken seriously is unclear. Another interesting takeaway uh, from last night is exactly how the vote breaks down by generation. Um, in countries like uh, the UK and the US, you know, you and I know um, that there's this, this idea that people become more conservative or more right wing as they get older. The opposite appears to be true in this case. Um, among, I think, 18 to 35 year olds, uh, Le Pen won. By a considerable margin, uh, it's actually the the middle aged and the older um, people who are voting for Emmanuel Macron, and it's the you know, the millennials, the uh, the Zoomers who are voting for Le Pen, which is just fascinating. That is fascinating. So, what do you attribute that to? Well, <laughs> we were discussing this this morning as well, and actually, we I think the the, the true reasons will come out because I'm sure the pollsters will want to interview everybody they possibly can to figure out. Uh, what it is they can do to prevent the young people from voting against uh, how the uh, globalist establishment want them to. But my suspicion is possibly this, uh, that uh, Le Pen comes from a, a political dynasty. Her father um, was the, uh, uh, the leader of her party before her. And he was somewhat a, a toxic personality, if I can put it that way. He was part of sort of Europe's old right, um, you know, and 
there are very dark associations about at times in, in especially in places like France where there was you know, collaboration with the Third Reich and there was a lot of anti-Semitism. You know, it was obviously very bad stuff. And perhaps the older generation remember him and they still associate him with that party, whereas the younger generation don't remember um, the old style French right and nowadays think of it as uh, you know something that uh, protects people of the Jewish faith in in France, not doesn't but doesn't attack them. So, uh, is what is the media suggesting in France? Because it seems like they're just framing it as a blowout win, which it, it is. But it's also, as you say, it does note that there is some sort of shift, I guess, culturally. So it's the, or maybe are we being too optimistic about it, Oliver? Well, I'm, I'm not. I wouldn't call it a blowout by any means. I mean, it's it's an outright win, and you know, Le Pen performed badly in some areas. I mean, I'm just right now. I'm looking at the two election maps from the first round and the second round, and there are whole swathes of the country uh, where Le Pen came first in the, in the first round, uh, where she lost in the second. So, you know, that's that's definitely bad for her. Then again, there are others that the, the, the reverse is true, especially France's overseas. Um, areas and this is fascinating places like Guadeloupe, Martinique, uh, French Guiana, which is a huge piece of, of South America. People forget that there is you know, actual actual France in South America still, um, as if a, as if it was still a colonial country, which has equal voting rights in this election. And they all voted for Le Pen, and there are very interesting reasons there that we can probably get into. But how is the establishment media framing this? Well, a lot of the discussion looking at the French newspapers this morning is already thinking about the next election, not the next presidential. But we have the election for the French Parliament coming up, and uh, we've already had discussions between Le Pen and between Zemmour, uh, who was a, another uh, character running on the right uh, who was knocked out in the first round, that there could potentially be an electoral uh, pact there uh, to try and uh, basically take control of the French Parliament. Now, that's interesting because if you have a French president, you know, Macron, who is this globalist centrist, um, trying to rule the country with a parliament that has opposed him beneath, um, you, know, you guys in the US know exactly what that's like with a you know, president who doesn't control the House and the Senate. It can make things very difficult for him. So that's the next fight, and that's what they're talking about already. Could you just remind people of Le Pen's background, like what her politics is like? Because it's not exactly, you know, Trumpian politics. But again, I don't know if that could even exist in France. No, it is. There's always this sort of uh, lazy um, um, uh, sort of position where everybody who is on the right in any way is compared to, you know, Trump or whatever. Like you had that in the United Kingdom with Boris Johnson. Oh, he's Britain's Trump. No, absolutely not. You know, he's very pro-mass migration, always has been. And he's just more and more showing his kind of collective uh, sensibilities these days. And the same with Le Pen. And uh, Le Pen has been around politically considerably longer than Donald Trump. Um, but uh, no, not, not a lot shared there. And a lot of that comes down to the fact that actually France has a very uh, specific um, political ecosystem compared to not just you know, Anglophone countries like the UK or the US, which are reasonably similar in many ways, but also compared to other European countries. And that's just because France has its own very special, unique history. It's a very long-lived country compared even to other European countries. And it, it has that sort of Republican history uh, that others have come to more lately. Um, but, but because of that, the point I'm getting to is that Le Pen's political program might surprise some. Now, the big things that are being discussed um, in this in this campaign, the thing that we heard most about, of course, um, is the issues with Islam, political Islam uh, in France. And that's, again, it's something that might defy expectations. Anywhere else, you might expect the left-wing candidate, you know, Macron in this case, uh, to be you know, very pro-Islam. Um, 
plurality and pro you know, mass migration, all that sort of thing, you'd expect Le Pen to be very anti and you know, the line would cut there. You know, not so. Um, Le Pen has a sort of a very hard line um, take on, for instance, a veiling. Um, France banned the Islamic veil in schools way back in 1994, uh, but a part of her campaign was to you know, essentially ban it on the streets as well uh, to encourage um, uh, to encourage everybody to uh, you know, diversify, but also to you know, to fit in into mainstream French culture. But Macron has had this huge campaign over the past couple of years to fight hardcore political Islam, and he's been shutting down radical um, Islamic organisations. He's been shutting down extremist mosques. And yeah, this is what I mean by it's, it's not the sort of dividing line you'd expect. And actually, although he is the left globalist candidate, on these sorts of issues, he's actually far to the right of many European politicians. Uh, so I'm curious about what this means for the direction of French politics. Do you think Macron makes any adjustments based off of this, or does he just see that, look, I won by 70%, whatever it is, I'm good, and he's going to keep going about uh, his business basically advancing globalism? Well, this is his last term. Um, I, I'm fairly certain that France has a two-term limit, although also I believe if he wins the um, coming elections, he could also change the constitution. Not that I expect that's likely. That would essentially create a new French Republic. Um, but we all know, as, you know, as we know from the whole of Macron's first term, he's a guy with an ego. Um, you remember back in 2017, 2018, he was going around calling himself Jupiterian, like the uh, like the classical god, and that he would you know, pass down pronouncements from on high, and he would be above the the fray and the mess of day to day politics. That's how he saw himself. Well, it hasn't turned out that way because everything's more messy than perhaps he believed it was going to be. But nevertheless, it sort of shows the mindset of Macron, and actually, I think it's going to be full steam ahead for him, having won the election yeah, reasonably convincingly today, even even less so than last time, but nevertheless. Um, so Oliver Lane, again, our London bureau chief. So what was the reaction throughout the rest of Europe? Was there any, anything surprising there? <laughs> Nothing surprising. It was exactly as you would have expected. In, in essence, jubilation. In fact, I was just looking at the uh, fantastic remarks of um, not literal demons, I can't say that, uh, Tony Blair, the former uh, Prime Minister of the United Kingdom, the author of the Iraq War, um, when he uh, said that the, uh, the election uh, was a huge tribute um, to Macron's personal leadership uh, and the importance of the political centre, political centre being globalist centrism, he said, Tony Blair, this victory is immense for Western democracy. And of which, of course, he means, thank God we didn't have another Brexit, because, of course, uh, that to Tony Blair and men of his ilk is the absolute uh, worst thing that could possibly happen. And just to think about the sort of you know, level of elation across Europe that we're seeing today, and we're getting a piece on this at Breitbart London very shortly. Um, you know, in recent days, we had European politicians lining up to tell the French people how important it was that they do as they're told and vote for the the approved um, globalist candidate. Um, and so they did. So it's a happy day for European leaders. Right, let me pick your brain on a couple other quick ones. It was Earth Day around the world. How did Europe react? How did the UK react? Were you guys really into it? <laughs> no, not as such. But um, we, we've had a lot of this in Europe and the UK recently, particularly with these um, radical extremists, these these climate extremists, basically seeking to take advantage of the instability the Russian war in Ukraine has caused. And this is fascinating. This is the kind of the callousness uh, that these people will act with. As soon as they have an opportunity to increase human misery, they will do so to further their own narrow political, political ends. And you know, while we have 
essentially shortages of energy in the UK and Europe in recent months over the, the winter and early spring. And these extremists have been blockading oil terminals. They've been, you know, gluing themselves to LNG terminals um, to prevent energy coming through. And we've actually, you know, Alex and I, we discussed this week before last, I think, on the on the show, the, uh, the prospects of fuel shortages, you know, trying to get to the gas station in the UK became impossible because there were so many of these protests going on at once. So, you know, for these guys, every day is Earth Day. Uh, let me ask you again about the president of the United States, former president of the United States, Donald Trump, weighing in on the royal family. And I kind of agree with his takes on it. Pretty surprised at all to see uh, this coming up. I guess Piers Morgan was setting the agenda, but uh, a lot of talk of Trump ragging on Prince Harry and saying he's a disgrace for the royal family. Uh, hard to disagree with him, but it's still kind of surprising that that's the, the conversation at the moment. Well, look, Piers, Piers Morgan, I think, was always going to bring this up because he trades on his proximity to these to these to these individuals. You know, he trades on the fact, or he traded past tense probably now. He trades on the fact that he was a friend of Donald Trump and could pick up the phone and call him any time. And I'm sure he sees himself in the same way um, with with Harry and Meghan. But I think what Trump said uh, is absolutely right about Prince Harry that he's an embarrassment for the way he's turned his his back on his own family. Um, and sort of the context of that, we've got to remember that Trump loves our Queen, Queen Elizabeth II. He thinks she's wonderful. And I, you know, I think he's actually said that one of the highlights of his own presidency was the fact he got to come to England and meet the Queen at Windsor Castle. And you know, I think that kind of shows his depth of feeling there and probably his very deep-seated disappointment that Harry and Meghan could treat the Queen, a wonderful woman, so, so terribly. Oliver Lane, our London Bureau Chief, wonderful stuff. Thanks for the report, and we'll catch up soon. Have a great show. Thanks for having me on. Okay, so we continue to try to highlight online influencers and people in the culture who share our politics and are active online and not just kind of passive, but are really getting involved. And uh, James Vick is someone who's a very popular person, not just for his history as a fighter where he's fought some of the biggest names in the game, was in the Ultimate Fighter UFC for a long time, but he's also a very popular person online in the hunting world. He is a big, a big time hunter, particularly hogs, but he hunts all sorts of different things. And he's a really compelling social media figure, follows Breitbart and engages with our content. So we reached out to him and we had a conversation and I think it's really terrific. And now you can hear it. Welcome to the show, James Vick. Thanks for joining me. Uh, yes, sir. Thank you for having me. So, James, let me talk to you about, uh, I want to get into some fighting, some sports news with you, but tell me about, politically speaking, uh, it's something that when you're a public person in the culture as you are, uh, to be politically minded, to be, uh, particularly if you don't have a certain set of values, um, and those are the values that more align with the establishment media. It's a bit of a risk. So uh, tell me what issues are most important to you and what made you uh, become outspoken online. Um, it's definitely, it, it definitely is a huge risk, honestly. Um, uh, especially, like, I have a lot of friends, um, even fighters, um, that, uh, that are even scared to speak up because they're worried about their page getting taken down or, or shadow banned. I'm very shadow banned on Instagram um, and, and some of the other platforms as well. But um, just because, um, you know, it's, it's, it's like all the professional athletes besides fighters, 
support, you know, a certain political, you know, ideology, basically. Um, you know, a lot of it for me is I'm from Texas. Um, I, I grew up, you know, a, a small country town kid from Texas, and um, I'm a big hunter, you know, outdoorsman, so I'm, a, you know, a big gun guy. And um, I just, I've traveled the world, and I've seen, uh, I've been to different countries, I've lived in different states, I've, you know, I've um, just been around, and I've seen the way um, a, a lot of different things are, and I just don't agree with uh, the left and a lot of a lot of their opinions. And um, uh, I feel like, um, you know, I have a kid now, it's, it's you know, I feel like you, you have to say something uh you know, even though it can be risky at times. And so what are the things that motivate you the most? What are the issues that you think you just absolutely cannot, uh, you, the, the, you absolutely cannot avoid uh, in terms um, of, yeah, politically speaking? For sure, the Second Amendment, because, you know, I'm a big hunter and outdoorsman. I, you know, I do some guided hunting stuff as well. I, um, uh, I'm, you know, I grew up hunting, uh, and fishing with my father and um that that one you know i just you know it's just i think that the way they they make guns sound and the way you know i hunt with ar-15s um the way they make just all of that sound is just a complete lie and uh act like it's such a huge problem in this country when it's really it's not it's not a huge problem it's only a huge problem in certain areas um and that and you know how you know all the all of the race baiting going on and you know the the um the trans, you know, movement, all of this stuff. I mean, it, I feel like it's important, especially when you have kids, you know, if you, if, uh, if you don't stand up and say something, you know, then, um, it, it, if there's enough of us not doing it, then they, then they win, you know, you have to, you have to have a voice and say something. Yeah. So I want to go through a couple of those. So first of all, when it comes to guns, firearms, obviously this is a real dividing line in the country. I think a lot of people in the country see gun culture as a hugely positive influence, but then there are those who are like those who are currently in power who I think see it as some sort of uh, a thing that's innately dangerous and toxic. You obviously are pretty handy with firearm. Uh, what are some misconceptions you think people have about people who like guns? Well, one of one of them is um, just you know the AR-15. It's like the left; um, they always use the smallest percentage of things to make the arguments. It's, it's mind blowing, um, you know that, that everyone's getting shot in, in the United States of America with AR-15s um, when it's you know responsible for like two percent of all gun deaths in this country. Um, um, it's a very small percentage. Um, that's that that would be one. You know, just uh, the fact that um, there's you know it's just always small percentages there's i grew up in a, a town i'm moving in several towns in north texas and everybody um everybody had guns 90 percent of the population of north texas in the in the country towns that i grew up in all have guns and we didn't have these type of problems so it's, it's not a gun thing it's a it's an environment thing where they're at or a cultural thing um in these inner cities um it, it has nothing to do with the firearm there's literally Every town in Texas, almost any rural country town, 90% of the people have guns. Yeah, and this is something that I think it would just shock a lot of people on our coast that are trying to set all the rules for the rest of us, that they're really just trying to hijack cultures they don't even remotely understand. Uh, James Vick is on the line with me. He is a professional boxer and kickboxer, but also a professional coach. So if you go to James Vick MMA on his Twitter or Instagram, you can reach out to him and he can do online coaching, which is really great as well, even though he's still in the professional fighting game, uh, which is cool. So James Vick MMA for all that. 
Uh, it's a, you mentioned the trans stuff. It's a you have a, at least one young kid. I have several young kids, and it seems like this is a, a, something that really drives a lot of people who are otherwise cultural people into the more public political arena. Is just the concern that their children are going to grow up in America that is not as free or as uh, fair as maybe the ones we grew up in. And uh, t- tell me about this and how you're. Of uh, fatherhood and parenthood relates to any online activism you engage in. Um, with the with the trans community thing, it's it's just crazy to think that you can have a biological male at one point who decides to change his gender, um, compete against women. I mean, these they're they're physically so much bigger. They're I mean, it's it's nuts. Like it's nuts. I couldn't even imagine this happening at a high level in fighting where people really get hurt. Like I could imagine someone. Like if you're if you're a coach as a fighter letting your letting your female fighter fight a trans guy you you're a horrible coach like you you would never allow that to happen you're risking this person's injury I mean this is serious stuff and um I mean it's also not even from a from a martial arts and fighting perspective it's just serious in all sports because these women have worked their whole lives and they're getting cheated out, out of these um these opportunities against against grown men honestly. So what is your reaction to Leah Thomas, for example, who's the man who's set records in the Ivy League swimming and uh, the fallout, which is a lot of states banned uh, men from competing in women's sports, but still men are allowed to swim against women in a lot of states at this point, And a lot of people are, are really adamant that that's a good thing. The, the people that are adamant about it are people guarantee people who don't compete. People who who it's it's the it's the uh, it's a small percentage of people. They're trying to. It's like the left tries to cater to too the small percentage of everything. It's nuts, and they're starting to see it with all the all these businesses and everything being hurt from this. Uh, um, it, you're trying to cater. You you can't have grown men competing against women and thinking that eventually it's it's, it's going to end good. It's just, it's nuts. Like people are going to stand up as they should. And and I think you're starting to see it. Uh, I want to point out that a lot of people who are back, the men being able to compete against women in sports is because they don't think there's a significant difference between men and women. This has been a mission that the left's had for a long time. Uh, But as a fighter, as a mixed martial artist, uh, describe to me what it would be like if men like the ones you compete against started uh, kickboxing against women and uh, fighting mixed martial arts against women? I mean, it would, it would be devastating. It would be horrible. I mean, it would honestly be one punch. As soon as the man landed, it would be over. The, the size of a man's hands, the, the, the power they punch with versus the, what women punch with. Um, uh, I mean, there's always, you know, rare exceptions where you could pair up, you know, uh, um, a fighter, a male maybe that's not very, honestly, just not very good against a world-class woman that she could win. But as a whole, um, they would get hurt. They would get injured. It would be it would be horrible. And any coach that would allow that is it, it, a selfish, you know, piece of, piece of shit person, honestly, if they would even allow their female fighter to to box or kickbox or compete physically in a yeah, physical that's right. martial arts sport against a man. It's just it's disgusting. Like, it would literally, uh, it, would, it would be a lot of injuries, a lot of injuries. So you're, you're so right. It's only a, 
only a piece of crap person would allow for men to beat up a woman and act like this is some sort of a virtue. Yeah, that's exactly where we're going. We're, if we're not there already, I, I want to segue a little bit. And again, James Vick is on the line with me. James Vick MMA. Uh, look him up on social media if you want some online boxing and kickboxing, and you can keep up with his professional fighting as well. Also, he does some hog hunts. So I want to segue to uh, hunting and fishing because you're a big hunter and fisherman, and most of your social media is uh, photos of you on hunts and videos. Uh, I'm, I was going to cut to the chase. Explain noodling to me. Okay, so I, so I'm not I'm not a great noodler. I've only been a few times. I have a. Um, uh, um, some friends that have taken me and um basically you just uh you find where the catfish are at usually they're you know they're they're laying on their eggs under a rock or something and you reach down there and then um you once you know where they're at you reach in there you run your hand through their mouth and you grab them and you're basically fishing with your hands um you fish for gigantic uh, catfish with your hands about that on, on um uh, about some Oklahoma guys who did it, and that's kind of how it got popular. And then there's a little catfish girl on, on social media that, that, that just pulls them out, and she's real small and cute, and it, it really um, um, it, it made that that uh, newly popular. It's just unbelievable. You guys have to check out the video on James's social page where he literally reaches in the ground, pulls out gigantic catfish, and some of them look like they got to be 50, 60 pounds. I mean, they look huge. Yeah, one of that, that, that one I pulled them pulled out. Um, uh, it was, was 59.8 pounds. It was right at 60 pounds. It was, it was huge. That's unbelievable. Yeah, is that scary? It seems very scary. I think I would be frightened to do that. Well, fortunately, I went with my friends who are experienced, so I let them put their hands down there first, and he's and then the, the, the fish would peck on their hands, and they're like, okay, he's down there. Go down there and get him. Because I, I was a little timid to put my hands down there when I, you know, I fight for money. So I was a little timid to do it without without their advice first. <laughs> <laughs> so um, uh, hog hunting is it seems to be your favorite. I have to say, our resident gun rights reporter AWR Hawkins, he's a also his favorite hog hunting. Uh, what is it about hog hunting that is particularly uh, satisfying or fun or exciting? So hog hunting is the best um, for me because um, here in Texas, there, there's so there's so many of them, and the population is so out of control. There's no season and there's no limit. So if you want to go deer hunting, you have to wait till you know uh, um, November, December, January to go deer hunting. There's a season, right? There's no season here. You can hunt hogs year round. And while I was in the UFC for about seven years, I um, I would travel a lot. So when I would come home, I, I would leave for two months and go to training camp. I would come back here to Texas, and um, when I would come back, if deer, if there was no season, I couldn't hunt. So I started hunting predators, you know, hogs, coyotes, bobcats, stuff like that, and um, uh, and got, you know, uh, one of my sponsors is Pulsar, Pulsar Thermal Imaging. Started hunting with thermal, and that's like, uh, it's like cheating. It's like a video game for a grown man. Like you go out and you, uh, <laughs> it's super cool. It's super cool. It's you go out there and you can see the pigs at nighttime, and um, you, you can just shoot as many as you want. And I always clean my pigs. I eat them. You know, me and my son eat wild meat like three or four days a week. Um, it's just a good lifestyle and um, just no season and, and no limit. You get to hunt as much as you want. And the fact that they're predators and they're overpopulated, it does mean that you're, it feels like a little more ethical um, than some of the other things, probably, if people are on the fence about that. Not, not to say I've, uh, I'm an authority on this particular topic, James, but it is seems like if you're having any insecurities, that might be the place to start is look for places that are overpopulated uh, or look for uh, look for animals that are overpopulated, and the, that could be your 
entree into the sport. Uh, for, for sure, I'm. Uh, um, you know, uh, the wild hog problem in Texas is is bad. Like when I say bad, they, they're supposed to kill basically. Like they reproduce like cockroaches. They reproduce so fast. Um, you're supposed to kill basically 70 percent of the population just to maintain it. Um, what it is now, and we're not we're not able to do it. Um, that's why you see so wow. many videos of people hunting out of a chopper, helicopters, and yeah, um, night vision with you know in thermal uh, where they shoot them. Uh, um, lots of them at a time. And there's so many of them. It's crazy, and they destroy millions of dollars worth of crops in all of these, all of these country towns here in Texas. And probably in the, Texas has the biggest wild hog population in probably the whole United States of America. And you don't have to. And you don't have to clean them. You don't have to field dress them. You can just leave them there, right, with the hogs. Um, yeah, the other, well, I mean, I clean, I do clean uh, a lot of mine for sure. Um, uh, and I have a lot big family and everything as well. Um, uh, you know, I'm the youngest of six kids, so I give it to all my family and stuff, but, um, uh, there's so many of them and then you can leave, you can shoot one, leave it out and then wait for the coyotes to come. And, you know, coyotes are a problem here because they eat calves, you know, they eat people's chickens. They, you know, they, um, eat their farm animals and stuff like that. Of so course. It's, just, it's, a, it's, a, it's a cycle and, of life that you're on. And dogs, like they eat people's pets. So no, I, I want to ask you about, <laughs> yeah, I want to ask you about um, your favorite, what's your favorite part? Uh, so, you, so you get the wild hog. What do you bring it home every time to the family? What part of the hog? Um, I bring home, um, I mean, I cut the back straps out, um, uh, the ribs. I cook a lot of ribs on the, on my wood pellet grill. Um, uh, I, I, uh, Cut like the the butt cheeks out, put them in the crock pot, smoke them. Um, just uh, I mean, p- p- probably the, the fatty parts of like probably the ribs. Honestly, when I cook the ribs on my window, that's probably my favorite part. Uh, do you ever eat any frog? Because I saw you, uh, I saw you skinning a, a bullfrog, and I was thinking that that seems like too far yeah. for me. I'm not sure I could get behind that. Dude, I'm telling you, they so they serve bullfrogs at restaurants. You should go try them, and I swear you'll fall in love. It's it's it, it's really they're really good, and I'm, uh, I know a lot of people say, "Oh, this food tastes like chicken," or "This one tastes like." They taste a little bit like chicken, but it's like when you when you fry the the the, the frog legs, they're a little gre- yeah. more greasy, but it, like in a good way. And um, I mean, they, they're good. Like a lot of Cajun restaurants serve frog legs. You should go try them. It's one of those things where it seems like some of this stuff, it's either only really fancy places like a French restaurant, you get the frog legs or some, you know, backwoods Cajun place in Texas, maybe like maybe that's the those are the two places to get it. Um, I want to switch and talk gears, talk about fighting a little bit and uh, turn back to something that's come up a couple times in the show. Uh, why is it that it seems like there's a big concentration of right of center people who are also into fighting and mixed martial arts is it the discipline is it the personal responsibility i mean what is it in your mind because it does seem like uh of, of all the sports there's more outspoken people who are in mixed martial arts who are sort of my side of the aisle politically well i mean i think there's several reasons um i think a lot of mma uh people I, I, for one thing i think it being a single person sport versus a team sport um yeah I mean, obviously, you're you're on a team. Like when my teammates fight, I I and they win, I'm happy and I feel like I've won. Or if they lose, I'm I'm sad and feel like I've lost. So you still get the team atmosphere, but you but it's it's like life. You still represent yourself. Um, and also, I think you know Dana White has been a big big uh, in the last couple of years. Dana White is um, he's let fighters be themselves. He he keeps politics out of sports. And if if a fighter wants to talk about it, they're they're allowed to. If they don't want to, they're they're not. You know, they don't have to. 
Um, so, you know, Dana Wyatt and the UFC has been very, um, you know, uh, inst- instrumental in that of just letting fighters say and do what they sure. want. And I just think that uh, a lot of other uh, a lot of other uh, sports won't allow that. Like the NBA is not allowing that. Um, it, it's it's going to be a lot of backlash. Um, and just in fighting, um, I think you know we're we're not as big as the NBA stars or the football players. Like our, even though even if we have a good social media following and stuff like that, we still don't have the online presence. Very few of us do that an NBA player has. Um, so uh, we just, I mean, Dana White lets people be themselves, and um, I think you know in the MMA community, it's not looked down upon as much as it would be like in football or basketball if you spoke out uh, against a certain party or anything. Uh, it looks like in, that you have in your past got a chance to fight a lot of top names in the fighting game, a lot of legends. Was there anyone in particular that was most exciting or your favorite to fight against or least favorite to fight against? Um, yeah, so so I started my career was going good. I, started, I was in the UFC for almost eight years. It was all good. And um, the hardest part for me was I didn't start fighting until very late in life. I was 20 years old when I started boxing and didn't even start grappling until I was 22. So the hardest part for me was trying to catch up to guys who had been training their whole life. Um, I mean, it, it was the biggest uphill battle because sure. you have to, like, I basically had no life in my 20s. Like, you see me hunting. I'm 35 now, and I, I um, you see the hunting and fishing. Well, I went about nine or 10 years. Like, I grew up doing that stuff, and then I went about nine or 10 years in my 20s where I didn't do it, and I just sacrificed my entire 20s to get to where I was at in my career. Like, I, I fought Justin Gaethje, who's fighting for a um, UFC, you know, world title coming up, and, um, uh, you know, he'd been wrestling since he was basically four years old, so just trying to catch up to these guys was very hard, and um, I mean, obviously, Gaethje was one that was, you know, that was very athletic, um, hit very hard, um, uh, you know, would, would have been a so hard to take down, you know, a division one college wrestler, um, uh, fought Paul Felder, fought Dan Hooker. Um, the last few fights I, 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 uh, lost in the UFC, you know, was against top seven ranked competition. That the guys are ranked top seven in the world. So, um, it, looking back, I probably should have t- did it a little different. I could have turned down some of those fights and I, I possibly would still be in the UFC, but I, I just fought anyone they asked me to. And, um, you know, kind of grew up that way, just, you know, not being afraid of anything. So, uh, you know, it didn't work out at the end there for me, but um, uh, there's there's fighters and there's tough people everywhere, um, no matter what country, you know, what religion, you know, what race. I mean, there's tough athletes everywhere, and um, it's just, uh, you know, there's a lot of guys, you know, that are good and, and coming up, so there's always someone else um, that's good, and the guys I fought at the time were, were right there at the top, and some of them aren't at the top anymore, but when I fought them, they were in their bones. What is the breakdown, do you think, of when we're talking about an elite fighter when it comes to psychological versus physical preparedness? Is there, when it comes to getting, it looks like you're pretty much in impeccable shape. I'm sure you stay that way for the most part. What's tougher to, to gear up when you're really in the heat of competition? Is it, is it discipline? Is it psychological? Is it, or, or is it just making sure you're, you're up on your diet and your, and your nutrition and your workouts? Um, obviously, all that's important, but honestly, like at the at the top level, um, it, it really is. It comes down to technique. It's that simple. Um, uh, I had a lot of technical problems that I that when I got to the UFC, and um, I I was with some coaches that you know that honestly didn't correct technique, and I was such a natural fighter. I, I basically you know beat um, uh, wow. 
guys and got to the UFC just by being a, a natural fighter. Um, it really is a technique thing because I'd be I was nine and one of my first ten fights in the UFC. I won, you know, nine out of my first ten fights, and I, I won them pretty easily. Um, uh, and, until I ran into the top ten guys. When I ran into that, that top ten category, that's when you you start to see the major technique differences. The people who have really trained their whole life with good coaching and just don't have as many flaws in the technique. And also, you know, there is variables of luck. You are fighting with little gloves. So if someone lands one punch, you know, in MMA, you know, it, it could be over with the smaller gloves. But uh, all of it's important. You you have to be able to – you have to diet and be be able to cut weight. Everybody in the UFC, for the most part, is pretty much going to be in shape or they wouldn't be there. Um, uh, usually when, yeah. when you see someone gassing out or getting tired, um, a lot of it could be, you know, their nerves. They could have adrenaline dump and get nervous, or they could just be, uh, you know, a little mentally weak as well. If There is people in, um, at the high level that compete that aren't honestly just that strong in the mind, but, but their technique is so good it doesn't matter. If, there's, if the skills are high enough, um, the, 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 honestly, the softer guy can beat the tougher guy if the skills are high enough. Very so interesting really stuff. To, at the top level, I would say techniques. It's t- techniques, number one. James Vick. James Vick MMA on Twitter and Instagram. You should message him if you want some online trading and if you want to go on a hog hunt. James, it's really a pleasure to talk to you, and I hope you'll come back. Thank you, guys. I appreciate it. I got American That's all for today's show. Thanks, as always, to producers Haley and Greg Eben, who make everything sound so crisp and good. And thanks to all of you who share the good news about Breitbart with everyone you know. 10,000 friends and family members. That's all we ask. We'll talk to you tomorrow. Thanks for listening.